Hello everyone, welcome back to Synergy Cast. I am your host, Sonia Jaffer, and I am really excited to share with you all today's episode. It is the second part of the White Privilege series, so if you haven't listened to part one of the White Privilege series, you can go ahead and tune into that now, um, but also you can just continue listening to this one. But it is a the part two, so it is the conversation centering around white privilege and what that means today. And um, yeah, so today's episode is a little bit longer than my usual episodes, but that is because I had six people, six peers of mine, um, who are from my art therapy program at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. So I had six of my peers come on and discuss white privilege. So I'm really excited to introduce you all to my peers. And so the first two will be voice memos that were sent in to me by my peers. So the first memo that you will hear is by Courtney Bennett. And um, her preferred pronouns are she, her, hers. And I will be including her contact information, her Instagram and her email um, in the episode notes and as well as all the other Um, peers as well but I will list it here now so her Instagram is c.artney and her email is c-a-b-e-n-n-e-t-t-9 at gmail.com so and she is completely open to um, if you want to reach out to her and chat with her she is completely open to that so Without further ado, we are going to listen to Courtney Bennett's voice memo on what white privilege means to her. Um, And so another thing I want to quickly mention is that all of the peers of mine that you will be hearing today are um, people that identify as white. And um, they are also people that are in my art therapy program. So they are also studying currently how to be an art therapist and a counselor. So thank you all for tuning in. And without further ado, let's listen to Courtney Bennett's White Privilege. Hello, my name is Courtney Thank you so much, Sonia, for allowing me to get involved in your podcast and speak about the topic of white privilege, Um, especially important right now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and everything that is happening in the world right now. Yeah, so let's talk about it. Um, To begin to unpack this topic a little bit what white privilege is and what it means. I think that first of all it's important to address that white people can sometimes get defensive when they hear the word privilege or white privilege. They might think that having privilege means that um, they've never had any hardships or faced any obstacles and that's not true. White privilege um, manifests in ways I always took for granted. 
I can turn on the TV or go to a bookstore and see whiteness represented at every turn as the default and the characters, everything. Um, I don't have to worry or think about comments about my race. A personal example of this, actually, there was a supervisor at a career fair at my school who asked some of my classmates who were people of color, where are you from? And they would say, like, the state that they were from. And she would be like, no, but but where are you from? And I actually went on to have an interview with uh, the supervisor and the fact that she never, not once, asked me that question is, to me, telling and is a, a pretty solid example of of white privilege. Uh, the fact that, where are you from, for instance, is a question I've never had to put forth the emotional labor to try to explain that, nope, I'm, I am from Michigan. That is where I am from. Uh, so really, I think it's about recognizing this and understanding it. And also, what's important is moving beyond acknowledging it, white privilege, and into actually doing the work, um, the anti-racist work. Uh, and I think a lot of a lot of this can happen on a personal level. So for me, it's having conversations about race at the dinner table with my family members, with my friends. It's about using my privilege, using the platforms that I have. It's speaking up. It's listening when people call me out. Uh, it's holding myself accountable. If you're an academic like me, hopefully not for too much longer, fingers crossed, um, it's, paying, it's paying attention to who you're citing for, for your papers. There's more people you can cite than old white dudes, believe it or not. And there's so much literature out there. Uh, read James Baldwin, read Toni Morrison. I just read Beloved by Toni Morrison like two weeks ago, I think, and it was absolutely amazing. And there are so many books that I have yet to read. Um, Heavy by Kiese Lehman, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, Citizen by Claudia Rankin, just to name a few. Um, and I think that another important part of this uh, for people to know, for white people to know, is that when we're doing the work of unpacking our white privilege or anytime we're trying to be an activist and to do anti-racist work, if, like me, you're the kind of person who worries about getting it right, well, first accept that you probably won't. Um, you're not going to get it right. You don't know all the things. Um, you're not going to get it right all the time. But that's okay because it's not about, quote-unquote, me getting it right. That's not the point. It's like when you're worrying about what to post on social media, how to be the best activist, you're not going to be you're you're not going to be the perfect activist. And at that point, I think you have to take a step back and ask yourself, what are my intentions? Because when I'm worried about getting it right, you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. When I'm worried about getting it right, I am centering myself. I am centering whiteness. 
So I think the point is to remember that this is not about me. The point is to do it, do the work, engage in the conversations, and to keep educating myself constantly. There's never going to be a point where I'm done learning. And yeah, that is that on that. Um, Stay humble, folks, white folks. Be mindful of your intentions. Um, And that's what I have to say right now. Thank you again, Sonia. I really appreciate you providing this platform for people to talk about this. Listen to all her episodes. They're amazing. Um, Okay, that is all I have. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, so that was Courtney Bennett's take on white privilege and what that means to her. I want to thank Courtney for your contribution and for giving a lot of resources as well that were helpful to you. Um, I will be linking all of these resources in, um, in the episode notes as well, so if you guys want to look into those later. Um, but now I will introduce the second voice memo, which was from another peer of mine, Julianne Gerner. She got her BA in psychology with a minor in art from Westfield State University in Massachusetts. She grew up there in Massachusetts and she moved to Chicago in 2018 to pursue a master's in art therapy and counseling at SAIC. And that is how I know Julianne. Um, So yeah, and Julianne's preferred pronouns are she, her, hers as well. So without further ado, here is Julianne Gerdner's take on white privilege. When I think about white privilege, I think about all the unearned advantages that I receive because of my whiteness and through white supremacy and my complicity in it and the ways in which it has shaped how I move in the world and the ways in which I live my life and choose to live my life. Layla F. Saad, the author of Me and White Supremacy, defines white privilege as unearned advantages that are granted because of one's whiteness. My white privilege and my whiteness affect every aspect of my life. And more recently, I have been thinking about the violence of white privilege. The unearned advantages that I have as a result of my whiteness come at the cost of the lives of people of color and the lives of black people in particular. I think it is easier for a lot of white people including myself, to talk about white privilege and how we hold white privilege, but then end the conversation there and not talk about the impact of holding white privilege, what it means that others are denied these privileges, and the history of how white privilege and white supremacy have been built. Tanahasi Coates discusses in his book Between the World and Me how terms such as white privilege and white supremacy obscure the violence that black bodies experience, obscure that it is a visceral experience. I often hear the phrase, white silence is violence, and that it speaks volumes. In addition, I also think that the supposed inaction of complicity in all forms, and that all means of holding on to my privilege are violent. However, I think there's not yet a greater conversation around this in white spaces, because it is so uncomfortable and terrible to understand that this means that I and all white people participate in this violence. To realize that my identity, my history, my life is rooted in and built upon the death and destruction of 
black people. It certainly is not something that I find comfortable to think about, and it brings up feelings of guilt and shame for me, but I think this is necessary to rehumanizing the parts of myself that for too long have been able to ignore racism, ignore the impacts of white supremacy, and ignore and deny my complicity in it. However, I also want to emphasize that the purpose of sitting with these feelings and doing this work is, as Rachel Cargill says, not for white people's self-improvement. It really needs to be rooted in working towards black liberation, towards ending white supremacy, and because we realize that all of our futures are tied up together. And this can be a lot to sit with, but it is necessary for white people to do this, to uproot the white supremacy within ourselves. In terms of the field of mental health and art therapy, which I have been a part of in both my work and education, I have recently been thinking a lot about something that I heard Dr. Angel Miles say, which was, it's a privilege to grieve. And she said this in the context of talking about how black, queer, and disabled communities in particular face so much harm and violence and loss that there's no time for grieving. There's no space under white supremacy and capitalism for grief and mourning. I also understood her saying this to mean that under white supremacy, really only white forms of grieving and mourning in general are viewed as valid and meaningful. The grieving and mourning of people of color, of disabled folks, of any oppressed group is often pathologized or stigmatized or not seen as appropriate, um, which is something we have seen play out a lot recently in how people condemn the protests, riots, and looting that have been born out of the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Nina Pop, Tony McDade, Ahmed Arbery, and many others. It's absolutely necessary that the mental health field and art therapy reconcile with, address, and take action to remedy the ways in which the mental health field and art therapy benefit from this pathologization and stigmatization, and from upholding the system of white supremacy, which allows the mental health field and art therapy to profit off of and benefit from black death and suffering. I'll end by saying that white supremacy and racism and oppression are the problems of white people. We, absolutely including myself, are the ones who need to figure out what is happening within ourselves that makes it possible for us to allow these injustices to continue. And there are so many resources out there, um, and I think including ourselves as white people, because really we need to be doing a lot of internal work. Some that I already, some resources I already mentioned are Layla F. Saad's Me and White Supremacy, Rachel Cargill, Dr. Angel Miles, ta Coates. There's also the book The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, No White Saviors on Instagram, and CanTV.org has free on-demand and live streaming panels and discussions such as Imagining and Demanding Educational Justice in the Time of Coronavirus. And we need to be paying these people for their labor, and we white people need to continue to dig deeper into ourselves.
All right, everyone, that was Julianne Gurner's take on white privilege and what that means to her. So again, I want to thank Julianne for sharing your insight and also those wonderful resources. And I will be linking all of the resources that are mentioned in today's episode preview. There are a lot. There are a lot of resources that are mentioned in today's episode. So, um, and they were shared by my peers that uh, were on the episode today, both um, Julianne and Courtney, who send in voice memos, and then also the other peers that I will be introducing um, that I had a interview conversation with as well. So I will be linking all of these resources for you all in the episode notes and also on the Instagram so you can find them all there. And there is no excuse for people that say that they can't find resources or, um, you know, stuff like that. If you can't find them, here they are. They're, they will all be there for you. Um, I also wanted to mention that I had a little bit of conflict with this episode because I had a little internal struggle. I was thinking about whether or not to invite peers of mine that are people of color um, onto this episode to also give their insight on white privilege, but I made the decision to not do that. Um, I will have peers of mine that are people of color on in the future for sure, but I think that I made this decision because for this conversation that centers around white privilege, I think it is very important for white people to have this conversation. Frankly, because as a person of color myself, it is very tiring to have to always teach white people what white privilege is and have to explain it all the time. And even then, when I do explain it, I am hit with rebuttals and white fragility and um, stuff like that. So frankly, it was just very, very it was kind of like a breath of fresh air for me to kind of be able to sit back and let my white peers carry on this conversation on what white white privilege is. So I wanted to put that out there before I go ahead and introduce my fellow peers of mine. Um, There were four that were in the interview conversation with me, so I will go ahead and introduce them now. So the first peer of mine is Jessica Walters. Preferred pronouns are she, her, hers, and she is an art therapy and counseling student at SAIC. The next peer is Laura Young, preferred pronouns they, them. Their Instagram is at lbyoung underscore, and they are a mixed media artist and an art therapist in training. The next peer is Catherine Lamb, preferred pronouns she, her, hers. Her email is slam1 at saic.edu. She worked for many years in a nonprofit doing after-school programming with children and youth before returning to school to get her master's in art therapy and counseling. She thinks of herself as a maker and really enjoys fibers, ceramics, and other mixed media projects. She currently lives in Rogers Park with her family. She lives with her husband and her two kids that are aged three and six. And the last peer that is in the interview portion is Amethyst Stravelli. Preferred pronouns are she, her, hers. Her Twitter is at Shaz Amethyst. 
And Amethyst currently lives in Chicago while she is earning her master's in art therapy and in counseling. She believes that advocating for social justice is crucial to her being effective as a budding art therapist. All right, so those are the four peers that are that you will be hearing in the interview conversation. So I will start that now. All right. So the first question is just basic. What does white privilege mean to you? Like when you hear that word, what are like some first thoughts that come into your mind? So Jess, if you don't mind, we'll go ahead and start with you. Um, I think white privilege kind of comes with the idea of like being the norm. Um, I guess like, you know, when I was a kid, I would turn on the TV and I would see people who looked like me or something like that. And then like the idea that like, um, like beliefs such as in like individuality and stuff when I was a kid was considered more like not a cultural thing, just a thing. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, yeah, so that's what I think of. One of the biggest things I think of when um, asked a question like that is just like how much, um, you know, we as white people don't have to like worry about a lot of things. Because um, I just think uh, back to a conversation I've had with my brother um, when, and this is really complex, so I won't go too much into it, but he um, was interested in buying a gun. And um, of course I'm having a conversation with him and that has lots of different layers. But at one point, um, somehow I bring up like, you realize how much harder it would be if like, a black person that was the same age as you, like same situation walks in and tries to buy a gun and he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I was just like, how do you not know what I'm talking about? Um, so it was just one of those moments where I was like, wow, that just really hit me as like, he doesn't even think about that and didn't even consider that there are so many things stacked against people of color in our systems and like society that just doing the exact same thing. Like if you are a person of color and then, um, you know, a white person and you both try and go and do the exact same thing, it's not gonna be the same experience. So I think that in itself just speaks to me like what white privilege means, so. Yeah, and I think like the very fact that your brother didn't know what you were talking about, that that's a white privilege right there, you know? Yeah. And then it's like, dude, like that's white, that is white privilege, you know? So yeah, I just thought of that when I heard you share that. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, um, I think just the ignorance that uh, we can see and like, I mean, I've been in it myself before, you know, I, it's been a long road to get to, you know, where I am now and it's still like a continual thing. So just realizing those moments where you're like, huh, I never realized that was the situation that other people have to face and it's like well there you go that's what it is yeah exactly and that made me think of another quote um y'all probably saw it on instagram um but it was like a post that someone said that like white privilege is having to learn about what it is but not experience it mm -hmm. um so yeah that, that made me think of that too yeah yeah thanks for sharing Catherine. Um, yeah, when I think about the term white privilege, I think about, um, I guess, the unearned benefits that I receive because of 
both the color of my skin and my family's history in this country. Um, you know, I think about, I wrote down some examples, but I was thinking about my own feeling of safety. Um, and just like, until not so long ago, like not realizing that other people do not feel the same sense of safety that I do. Um, and I also think about things like generational wealth um, because of policies in our country, things like redlining. Um, and, and those things that maybe, sure, maybe every person who is white does not have that, but there's this larger um, societal picture that's going on. So I think about both those sort of things that happen on the individual and like interpersonal level um, of having these, having like the benefit of the doubt, um, not having to like, feel like I need to check my backpack when I go into the store where that's sort of required. And I sort of feel like, oh, well, but I could get away without doing that and nobody would say anything to me. Um, but then also the bigger picture things that relate to like wealth and policies that benefit me um, at the expense of people of color. Yeah, exactly. I think like the, when you said safety, I was like, yeah, you know, cause like even in as like, future therapists that's like a part of our training is like safety and how people feel safe in their bodies and um you know how trauma can manifest in that way too um so yeah just like a lot of there's a lot of different layers to that too so yeah thank you thank you for sharing amethyst um yeah i think i've been thinking about it a lot recently um obviously because um it's it's always relevant but you know it's becoming more so a thing that like i guess is more uh like on the the brim sort of like how flora was saying and you were saying how it's like one of those things that like you can get away without thinking about it as part of privilege and then one of the words that came up in my mind for me was also entitlement like it's very much comes from a sense of being entitled to certain things or to certain treatment and not analyzing what that has to do with race, right? So it's like a combination of this like entitlement and this ignorance of like, you think you have the, um, that you are entitled to X, Y, and Z and you're not going to, you know, I think a lot of white people wouldn't say, like, I deserve to be, you know, get this job promotion because I'm white. Like, they wouldn't say that out loud because they know that that sounds racist and insane. I mean, people who love to be racist will say that out loud because, you know, they're vocal about it. But you do see that sort of attitude even by people who wouldn't say that sort of thing out loud where they're like, oh, well, why wasn't I, why didn't I get that job promotion? Why did they give it to this person of color instead and just this feeling that like they are inherently more qualified or that they are inherently more capable or um, entitled to certain things and certain treatment and like you know some of it is stuff that like you're not really entitled to as a person like job promotions or getting into whatever school like those are things that you're not really entitled to but even like things that you should feel entitled to that people of color and like other marginalized populations don't have that entitlement, like that feeling of safety, like, you know, everybody should be entitled to feel safe, like, 
walking around in public or like in their neighborhood. And that's just not the case for everybody. And if you're, if you grow up with that privilege of always feeling safe wherever you go, or always, you know, knowing that you're, you know, not in immediate danger in just mundane situations, then you don't realize how that shapes for other people. Like you just assume everybody feels the way that you do. Um, So that's sort of a lot of the thoughts that I've been kind of thinking about is the sense of entitlement and also the sense of ignorance towards other people's experiences. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I was just like, I was thinking of when you shared the thing about entitlement, um, like the example you gave, like for a job or something. Um, I was thinking of like how, and I've been thinking lately just about um, a lot of like systems in our country specifically that are just like rooted in racism. And um, so I was thinking a lot about like standardized testing too. Mm -hmm. It's like catered towards like white upper middle class and so that's why a lot of people like i hear a lot of people use that excuse like oh people of color or like black people specifically are like inferior to us because look at their test scores and it's like okay well like you're not looking at what the like the racist history of standardized testing and how that is it is designed to be catered to white people and upper middle class people. And then what Catherine mentioned, redlining, you know, like all these things are just like so interconnected. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, I, that's a beautiful point, definitely. Can I bring up one more thought I just had? Um, I was thinking about the, you know, the Amy Cooper um, Central Park, like dog walking, birding incident. <laughs> um, Well, I was thinking about that too, because I think we do, I know that I've said sometimes, and I think I said this in class one time that like, well, white people are just like ignorant of what's going on. And I think there is ignorance there, but I think there's also stuff that we know. Like when you watch that video and you saw her knowledge of what could happen if she called the police and says that an African-American man was threatening her life, like she knew that she had privilege that she could use against him and that could put his life actually in danger and that that might um, scare him off somehow from saying what he was saying to her. Um, So I think that's something that I've been thinking a lot is like how much is ignorance? How much do we sort of like suppress our own knowledge so that we can keep on using our privilege in ways that benefit us and harm other people? So Um, that to me was a really interesting video because she knew and she was using it on purpose um, in that instance. Yeah, she was almost using her white privilege as a weapon and was, yeah, very aware of the fact that she was doing that. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. Thank you for sharing. I think that's super important because in some cases it can sort of be seen as like using ignorance as like an excuse in some ways like oh I just didn't know or whatever and I think that's like another um like facet of white privilege but um I think it's really important to call out that like we can be ignorant but we can also know things um and it's like both things can be true because it's so easy to be like oh well like white people are just ignorant and that almost starts to feel like an excuse 
um, and does like forget that we also know things. And whether we realize that we're using it or not, uh, whereas like Amy Cooper obviously realized what she's doing, but yeah. My final one, it, I mean, it makes me think of the backpack thing too. If I know that that sign that says, leave your backpack at the door or with the cashier is not for me, I'm doing the same thing. Mm, yeah. Um, and I don't think of it as harming somebody, but it's like I am using this privilege that I somehow, maybe I didn't think through it, but I know that I have that privilege that that sign isn't for me. Yeah. Um, so it's similar in a way. I was just thinking of like for like something immediately that I think of that my family has experienced constantly and continues to experience uh, ever since I can like remember is like the um, so like TSA at the airport um, and how they do like random selection. And I've, I learned at a very young age that it is not so random, you know, like even though like the sign it reads random selection it, it's not that way you know so like every time we travel we always my family always has to get to the airport like at least two three hours like we already want to get there like at least an hour or two before but then we go an extra two hours before because we know that there's a really high chance that we will get stopped pulled over and um you know like the like literally i there's like a terrorist that has the same name as my dad and same birth date and birthplace so it's like a really shitty coincidence but like it is what it is um so like i like the first time it happened i was like okay like cool but then like take a note or something like you know like put it in the system that like this person is good like you know because like every time we go, we're literally stopped for the same reason. And it's just a constant reminder, you know, like every single time. And it like wastes our time too. Like we have to sit in this like random office, security office for like an hour, just sitting there only to hear like, oh, sorry, our bad. Like, yeah, y'all can go now. And it's like, dude, like, <laughs> but yeah, it's just so like routine now that we literally have to plan we have to schedule time for, for for this, you know, into our travel time. So, yeah, yeah. I just I just thought of that experience, personal experience of mine. Yeah, and um, in response to like uh, some of the other things that are being said with like the ignorance, you know, that is often very like willful ignorance on um on the part of white privilege and um Catherine bringing up that video um with um what was her name Amy Cooper um and she's calling the cops and just like all these other videos uh, where you see people calling the police on black people just like existing near them and they don't want them to a lot of those videos I've noticed are white women and I think being socialized as a white woman you have a special relationship to white privilege I mean it's just in the sense of having one privileged identity over others and so whereas you are oppressed through your like womanhood and your femininity and you you face that axis like you understand that like you know 
you have that um that you have whiteness at least to kind of push you ahead and to sort of like you're you're trying to reach that entitlement that those like treatment and that those opportunities that you feel like you should have because you're white but you're often barred from for being a, a woman um, or being socialized or viewed, at a, viewed as a woman. And so I think with a lot of um, people, like white people who have other like uh, intersecting marginalized identities, like that relationship to white privilege is very distinct in such a way that it is, um, you know, like it's, it's uh, you're not like, if you're not like a straight, white, able-bodied, like cis man, you're trying to reach whatever sort of access to that that you can. And you're trying to, to, to leverage that however you can to get that sort of, um, that treatment and that experiences that you feel entitled to through whiteness. Yeah, exactly. Um, that just, that made me think of uh, the book we had to read for um, I think it was for ethics or fieldwork, either either one, but Living a Feminist Life by Ahmed. Yeah. And one of the quotes that struck me so, there was a lot of quotes that struck me with that book, but yeah. one of the quotes that really struck me was like how white women are seen in our society as something or someone to be cared for, someone that needs to be like nurtured or supported, which has its own layers and like sexism and stuff like that. Um, but then on top of that, women of color have to deal with that, but then also we're seen as a threat and as a danger, not as something that needs to be cared for, which then has a, a whole nother layer. Like there's so many more layers to that too, you know? So yeah, that just made me think of that quote. Yeah, that whole book was just um, like a prose of quotes that I could just yell about forever. So yeah. for anyone listening, check out that book. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'll like link it and um, I'll put it in the episode notes too. So people can check it out if they're interested. But yeah, I highly recommend that book. And I was like, honestly, this is kind of a tangent, but like I was just so happy to like, not only read a text from a woman of color, but like, which which we do, we do read, I would say like in our program, because it is geared towards social justice. So like we do read texts by people of color. But for me specifically, it was a woman that identified as South Asian too. So I was like, this is rare, you know, like it's, it's pretty rare um, in our program for me to come across readings and stuff like that, that um, that are by South Asian women. So yeah, that was that was just like very, I don't know. I, I love that book so much for so many different reasons. Yeah. So the next question is, how did you learn about the term white privilege? So like we kind of talked about how we like, we kind of knew, like you kind of know what the term is a little bit, but like for me, like I, I kind of, I always knew what white privilege was but I never knew there was like a word for it or like a term for it. And I honestly, I don't think I learned what, it, what the actual term until like I got to undergrad. Um, and at Loyola University, it was like a social justice type of model too. So that's when I like first heard the term. So yeah, I'm interested to hear like, when was, what are your experiences with first learning about that term? 
Um, yeah, mine's the same. I learned the term freshman year of um, undergrad in my seminar class. It was one of like the first lessons that we learned, I think, in that class. But at the same time, like I felt like I already kind of knew what it was, but I didn't really have the word for it before then. And I don't quite remember the age when I knew what it was. Yeah, that makes sense. What um, undergrad did you go to again? I went to Kalamazoo College. It's a small liberal arts school in Michigan. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Loyola was a liberal arts school as well. Similarly, I think uh, when I try to think about when I first learned the term, the term I definitely learned in undergrad um, for my school. And I went to um, the Maryland Institute College of Art, um, which is in Baltimore, where um, I've lived most of my life is around Baltimore. Um, and I think that it really, be, like I really began like understanding and learning more about it when um, 2015 I was in school, I think it was my sophomore year and Freddie Gray was murdered. Um, and so there were protests around the city and um, rioting in quotes um, because people have now started to refer to it as like uprising um, just because riots have a negative connotation. But um, all of that was going on and I was just really steeped in like sitting and trying to like understand all of that even though similar to both of you I feel like I kind of knew all my life again like growing up in Baltimore um, I remember like my dad making like terrible jokes or I don't even know if he really made the joke but um, not to put I'm like putting my whole family out here but <laughs> it's real like that's the real experiences but uh, there's there's like memories I have of maybe not my dad, but other people like sitting in a car um, in Baltimore, like at a red light and hearing people lock the doors because there's like a homeless black person walking down the street. And I, I like don't, I, I wasn't able to like forget that because I think um, somehow I knew what that meant, <laughs> even though I, again, didn't have like the terminology for it. Um, but I could just tell that like, it, I think about it a lot when I um, am explaining to people how all white people are racist because I'll start with like I, I'm racist like we're just steeped in this society of like if you're a white person like that's just how it is because you see how everyone else around you acts and then you can't help but to act similarly because as a kid you don't necessarily know better and so always remembering like being nervous whenever I saw like a black man walking down the street and I was walking down the street as well even if I was with my family like just and I don't remember where that came from and that's how I know that like that's just always been ingrained in me and it's not necessarily always someone's fault it's just the reality of it um and so I've been thinking about a lot of all of that and um it's just interesting to try and remember you know when we really learned the term, even though I think it's always sort of been there. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about like, like you question, like, I don't know where that came from, you know? So like, I think like, like where, uh, where do you guys think it comes from? Cause like when I think of that question, I think like I immediately jumped to media because like media played such a big role in my life growing up. Like I love, TV shows, movies, music, um, and still do to uh, today. 
Um, but yeah, I like the, the first thing I jump to is like media, like how people, especially black people are portrayed on TV. Um, and like, I, I was seeing like um, something on Twitter the other day about the show Cops. And I think they like took it off the air or something. I don't know exactly the details about that. Um, but yeah, just like with, with shows like that, that just like so like specifically focus on black people and brown people and like people of color um, when, you know, that's like disproportionate because like it, there, the stats show that white people are just as likely and sometimes more likely to commit crime, but um, then black and brown people are the ones being portrayed heavily as, as the ones doing that. So yeah, I think like, I just thought of that as something like where one of the things that it may stem from is just like the power of the media too. Yeah, for sure. All right, Catherine. Hmm. I was trying to remember when I first encountered the idea of white privilege and it certainly was not in my undergrad, um, but I graduated a bunch of years before all of y'all, I think. <laughs> So um, I think that the dialogue was more around um, sort of like multiculturalism um, and sort of the broader conversations at that point in time. Not that these terms were not around then, but it just was not um, maybe quite as common in academic spaces, um, at least not where I was. Um, so I think my encounter with this concept um, was more like after I moved to Chicago um, as a young 20 something. Um, yeah, but I was having a hard time remembering like what those sort of first encounters with this concept were, but I definitely grew up in a small town in Ohio that was predominantly white. And I do not think this is something that I was thinking about. It certainly was not something that we were talking about in my family or in my school. Um, so I think I came to that term um, and that idea a bit later in my life. And this? Uh, yeah, I think, um, well, so when I was younger, my, um, my mother and a lot of like my siblings and I did a lot of religious activism, um, like activism for like religious equality. And so I sort of had this concept of like, oh, Christians have this privilege that they don't understand or like privileges. And then when people of other religions try to ask for rights that are equal, like they don't understand that they're at a privilege, privileged level. Like I, I experienced the term privilege in that sort of sense of like trying to balance like a privileges versus rights, you know, but I don't know if I put the term together with like, white privilege um, until um, a little bit later on, you know, maybe at least like, I would say it started being a term that I would have been like, yes, I recognize that term probably like, I want to say around undergrad as well. And I, I think a lot of that, actually, it's funny you mentioned media, because one of the, the ways that I first started seeing a lot of the, these terminologies and the, these discussions was on Tumblr which I got a Tumblr when I was in college. Um, and like, like, I, you know, did a lot of stuff on there, like, mainly, you know, trying to find like funny, funny stuff and like stuff that was relevant to my interests. 
um, on social media, you know, just like as another social media site to find, um, you know, that entertainment, but then also just peppered in seeing um, these narratives and these, you know, and not, a, not everything on, you know, social media that you read is a, is a great take, but it was like takes that I was being kind of exposed to that I had not seen or like heard from before. And I think that was something where I was like, oh, I can put like precise like language to things and I can have like other experiences and other um, uh, like other takes and other um, uh, insight from things that I could find on social media, um, you know, because I it wasn't just, you know, Tumblr, but it was also like other like websites that I would, you know, just, it's, I, it really kind of started cropping up a little bit more often after that. But I think like around that time with um, just using some social media sites that maybe aren't as like personal as like, you know, like Facebook or, or Twitter or something, but that are a little bit more broad where you get information from, you know, all sorts of different people very quickly in a whole lot of it. Yeah, Tumblr is fantastic. I love Tumblr. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Like, I, this reminds me of a conversation I was having with my partner, I think it was like a few days ago. And we were talking about like, where do we get our news from? And personally, like, I just do not like watching the news. I've never liked watching the news. Um, I, I just like don't know really which news outlet to trust the most because I feel like all news outlets kind of just have their own agenda a little bit. So I just like I just don't watch the news. But I, I was joking around with my partner that I get all of my news from like Twitter and Instagram, you know, like, and I've, I've I mean, I've totally admit that social media can be used to spread false information as well. And I have definitely come across a lot of false news, uh, false information that I've had to like go back and fact check. Um, but yeah, I've, I've also gotten a lot of like, you know, actual news too, um, that I feel like I would not have gotten from watching like CNN or, you know, any other news, major news network. So yeah, I thought like, like, that was kind of like a joke that I was saying that, but it was actually like, it was reality. Like that's, that's where I get my news, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I'm just, I was like, I feel like Twitter and Instagram are a little bit more trust, trustworthy in that sense. Cause I'm like, it comes from like all these people, you know, like it's actually the voices of these people on social media. So yeah. yeah that's what I was going to say is I feel like, um, you know, getting information and like stories from social media can be, you know, obviously, uh, dangerous uh for lack of a better term but um also so valuable because it is just the voices of people who are like experiencing things and i've been thinking about that a lot with documentation around the different protests that are happening right now um and some of the videos i took myself and of course um just posting them without you know blurring faces is like a whole topic we could go into about how that's dangerous but um, the, like, I came across this person on TikTok of all places who was 
like blasting and um, mess like being the messenger for this Google Drive of like videos that somebody's collecting of um, police brutality at protests. So like police instigated incidences, um, which I've got some video of that myself on my phone. Um, and so just thinking about like how making this Google Drive that can be an archive because as soon as somebody puts something like that on social media, it often gets taken down um, because even though we can say things, as soon as there's video evidence, um, that somehow goes against the guidelines. Um, and a lot of the videos that we do see are gonna be very like systematically put there, sort of like pro-cop, pro-like establishment kind of stuff, which sounds like a little conspiracy kind of maybe, but it's the reality of it. Um, because the reason this Google Drive exists is because wanting to have an archive, um, because things just get deleted and erased and disappeared or whatever. So it's, yeah, I don't know where I'm quite going with this train of thought then. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And I'm like, now I'm thinking like, see, we're in 2020 now. So we have so much access to like, we could just pull out our phones and just start recording stuff. And like, it's kind of like the people have their own archive now too. Um, but I can only imagine what it was like for people protesting before social media, you know, like I don't even know what that, what that would have been like. Cause yeah. Cause then where would you get, how would you get those archives really? You know, there are probably some ways like they, they had photography, like film photography and stuff, but um, it's not as accessible as just like having a smartphone, you know? Yeah. I think that, um, in a way having our phones is like a, a weapon of safety if that makes sense like um just being able to especially if you're a white person holding a phone um there's a lot less danger in that i think as soon as a cop or you know enforcement sees somebody of color holding a phone they get like even more aggressive because they're like why are you videotaping me but then like being able to just be a white person standing there just like videoing what's happening um is is definitely like a way of fighting back in some ways so i think about like protests before we just ha all had like disposable video cameras in, in a way um not disposable but you know what i mean um and i'm just like wow it's it was probably so much more dangerous um not that you know what's happening now isn't dangerous i don't want to you know put away the like um very real risk that people put themselves in but it's really interesting to think about that yeah definitely and i just like this question just popped into my head so it's okay if y'all don't really have an answer for it but i'm interested to hear um some of y'all who have had the experience of going out and protesting or maybe just from what you observed from watching videos and stuff the role that white privilege can play in protesting as well um, so yeah, what are what are some of y'all's thoughts on that? Go ahead, Jess. Um, I actually went to uh, a protest in my hometown, which is like a very small, mostly like conservative Christian area. And I was really surprised that there was a protest at all. But there was one and it was led mostly by teens, it seemed. And then they like brought in, um, I think they were like professional organizers of sorts um, from another city. And um, 
I just thought it was like very interesting. And I think I've been to three protests, but that one I think was actually the most impactful one I've been to because there were like families like outside watching us march by. And like, I saw parents like talking to their kids about why people were marching and stuff. So I don't know if these white families would have had the conversations with their kids that early if we hadn't been there. And then there are also like some hecklers <laughs> who like yelled stuff at us, which didn't happen to the other in the other two protests that I went to. So it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think I feel like the small town protests that have been happening are really interesting and show like some progress in some ways. Um, like when I was home um, just this past week in Maryland, um, we live now in the suburbs um so in like a really small mostly white town um and you know that's its own privilege obviously the reason we're there is because you know we have the privilege of being able to move out of the city or whatever um but my mom was reading an email or something and she's like oh laura there were like protests happening here and i was like what because <laughs> that's sort of the last thing i expect to have happened when um you know, I, on my very street, there's like Trump signs up at the top of the street. Um, and not just one, but two in this person's yard. Um, and, you know, I know that there are people who feel similarly to me in that neighborhood and in that town, but it was just really impressive and surprising to me that somebody organized. And I think, like Jess said, you know, there's a probably really good chance that it was young people. Um, and we're seeing a lot of young, like teenagers, like just somehow, I don't know how they do it. Cause I was not in that mindset in high school. I was like, I don't care about politics because <laughs> white privilege, I didn't have to. Um, <laughs> and so it's just, it's really amazing to see how like there's some progress in those ways. Like we have young teenagers just like organizing protests and um, really like, standing up and being like, listen, we know what's going on um, because they've been raised in like these conversations. And so it's really interesting to think about all that as well. But yeah, I, when I went to, I went to a protest here in Chicago, um, like a week and a half, almost two weeks ago, um, when everything was really just, I mean, it's still at a boiling point, obviously, um, but some of the first protests, I guess. Um, and I went downtown for one of those and uh, you know, you read a lot about uh, protesting tips for like if you're white and just being able to like use your body as um, because your body itself is a privilege. Um, like we've talked about, like cops aren't going to be um, violent with me as where they might be with people of color. Um, of course, you know, there's still a huge risk. And I was talking um, with a classmate about how like, you know, as we're trying to train to be therapists we can't we have to be careful because getting arrested can like mean we don't get jobs um and so there's so many different layers to it because for me um you know I get into the adrenaline hive like and just like the feeling of the protest and I'm just really angry and feeling a lot of different emotions um while there and so I walk towards like some unrest and like you know, tension between cops and the protesters. And I'm like, yeah, I can walk towards this, but then it's like, okay, what happens if they actually start like arresting people? Like, can I really like 
afford to be arrested. And I think that becomes really complicated because yes, I can, because I have a lot of privilege in like my identity as a white person. And then my family would be there financially for me to like bail me out or whatever. Anyway, it's just, it's interesting. So there's like, um, definitely that privilege of like using your body. Um, and that can be a helpful thing, but then there's also just like, I see, I saw white people at the protests, like instigating stuff. Um, like there was a huge police like truck, like one of those big box trucks. And, um, it was getting rocked back and forth and there's just a large crowd around it. And you could tell that the crowd of protests, protesters were kind of in disagreement about what was going on. Um, because yeah, we're all mad and like stuff, but if we knock over this huge truck with people inside of it, there could be a lot of stuff coming from that. Um, and by that, I mean like people can get hurt, um, not just arrested, but like protesters can get hurt. Um, and I looked over and there's, uh, I was standing next to a person of color and they're like videotaping it and shouting like, look, look at all those white hands on the truck. Like, this is not what we're here to do. And just realizing how much like, um, I think when these protests erupt, there's so many emotions from so many different places. And um, when white people come, they kind of forget in some ways. Um, you know, what I think the real reason is, um, because it's easy to do that. Like, I'm not necessarily faulting anybody. It's, it's, that's the reality. Like you get caught up in all of that and it's easy to just be like, uh, I just want to be mad because, you know, you may have your own reasons. There's so many things that this leads up to, you know, it could be like, you, you're not getting, um, what you need, your needs aren't being met and things like that. Um, but it's just, so that's where I think the white privilege of just being able to like, go to a protest and not have to think about how you could get really hurt or even killed protesting. Um, like I saw some white teenagers climb on top of a bus after like three um, black kids did. Well, they're not really kids. I don't know how old they were, but um, they climbed on top of a CTA bus that was sitting and um, all of a sudden there's like more white people on top of it than black people or people of color. And this, young like teenage boy I swear he was probably underage like pulls out alcohol out of his bag and starts pouring people drinks on top of the bus and I'm just like we are not having a party like this is not a party this is not a time for you to just be like I can do whatever I want um and so that was really that was really wild to see and just like really put some some of those things into perspective for me yeah. no that was great thank you for sharing that um yeah I was thinking a lot about I follow this celebrity influencer named Taylor Nolan on Instagram. And she talks a lot about intention versus impact. And I have been thinking about that a lot. Like when she brought that up, I think she brought it up in one of her podcast episodes. But yeah, I was thinking a lot about that and like how being a non-Black person, that how much that plays a role too, like your intentions with things versus the actual impact of your actions. Um, and we talk about that in our program too, a lot about how like good intentions can't like that can only get you so far, you know, if, if anywhere. So yeah, I was thinking a lot about that too. And like, I've seen a lot of, uh, white people and non-black people of color in protests use their privilege for good. Like I've seen videos of 
white people specifically putting their bodies in between black protesters and the police. So when I, when I see that, that is very powerful. Like that is where I feel like people are using their white privilege um, for good. Uh, but then you go and you see like Laura, you mentioned um, some prime examples of people using their white privilege for negative reasons um, and in harmful ways. And like, I immediately just think of Jake Paul, like, you know, I don't know if y'all heard about what he did, but yeah, he basically just like blew up a building or, or something like that. Or I don't know if he blew up a building, but like he was just causing lots of ruckus. And um, yeah, and then I think he ended up like facing criminal charges because of it, which I'm really happy he is. But yeah, that's yeah. like just a prime example of like using your white privilege for, you know, in, in harmful ways too, and that impact of that. Yeah, so I have one more thought about um, protests. Um, and that is that I've been to um, a couple of things on the north side or seen um, some footage from protests on the north side. Um, in which the police are treating people in a radically different way um, to how things have been taking place on like the south and west side of our city. Um, and one um, protest in particular that I'm thinking about in which um, I think somebody even like collaborated with um, our precinct to have some police officers like walk alongside the protesters in this like really different and troubling dynamic. Um, in which the police were almost sort of like supporting or protecting these predominantly white protesters. Um, and I've also thought a lot about the word peaceful and what it means in this time to be um, calling for peaceful protests or to say that you are going to have a peaceful protest. Um, yeah, so when clearly um, the reason that we are protesting right now and that so many black folks in our city are protesting is because of um, the impossibility of that in their own communities because of police brutality. So I've been thinking a lot about the privilege of being able to slap the word peaceful onto our protests because we're folks that are protected by the police. Um, so just another reflection on Chicago protests at least. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, that helped me remember what I was going to say. Um, because I, thinking back to some of the examples I, I talked about with um, seeing white people just sort of like taking advantage almost of the protests to, you know, take out their anger for whatever various reasons, or they think that like that's the goal is to be destructive, um, which, you know, in some cases it's totally called for. Uh, and it's a complicated, complex thing when we talk about like the looting and things like that. Um, but to not begin that conversation, but to think about how, um, you know, we can see the white hands on the truck, we can see like the young white boys drinking on top of a bus, but then um, all of that misguided kind of protesting gets, the blame gets placed on people of color um, by the media. And um, that's why I think those videos and those archives are so important is because it's like, well, no, here's what actually happened. But the hardest part is that having those doesn't really do anything. Like we talked about, they get deleted. Um, and it's hard for people to really like open up about it because of the fact that like, 
yeah, you have this privilege of being able to go to a protest and do something that isn't actually in line with what the point of the protest is. And then it's the blame isn't even put on you. It's put on people of color. And I think that is something that I think about a lot when I'm at a protest, like what am I doing? Um, how am I interacting? Um, because I can be really mad and want to destroy stuff too. But if I do and something comes out of it that, you know, because I'm in a crowd mentality that we end up doing something that maybe I actually don't agree with, like the, the blame isn't going to be placed on me. So. Oh. Yeah. I feel like that's just like a prime example of like that intention, intention versus impact, right? Like that example you gave is like you processing, okay, like, I impulsively, am I going to act and do this? But then wait a second, let me stop and think about that's the intention, but let me stop and think about the impact of what are these actions going to have. And so I think that's just like a beautiful example of that too, of that concept. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I, I'll, I'll say a little something about protests too. Um, so I haven't been able to actually go out to protests. Um, I, um, I'm very asthmatic, and so I'm very concerned about, like, not just COVID, but also, like, any sorts of other substances that are coming into contact, and we do know that police are, like, shooting tear gas and pepper spray at civilians, and so that's a very big concern for me as someone with a chronic um, upper respiratory illness, and, um, and so trying to figure out, you know, where else I can use my privilege and where else I can help. Like my roommate was going to a demonstration and I, you know, told her, I was like, Hey, if you need, like, I can come pick you up in my car. If anything goes wrong, you need me to drop stuff off for you. Um, like offering that sort of support where I can or, um, signing a lot of petitions, donating to bail funds, doing all sorts of that stuff, um, trying to find other ways that maybe aren't as, um, aren't as like flashy. And I think what you were talking about earlier with like white people going to protests and it being like, you know, like Jake Paul or like the teen drinking on a bus because he thinks it's a party, like, the the sort of intentions of that where it's like why are people going to these protests like you know are, are people just trying to get a cool co-op like a cool photo op for their instagram um and like i've been seeing a lot of that with like people going to protests and taking these videos of these like white like usually kind of young white people who are trying to be social media influencers or whatever and they're like posing with like the you know protesters and doing all this stuff trying to be like uh very performative with their activism more so than actually caring about the cause like it's more so about like making them look cool and so um I think that's a very very uh prominent thing and with white privilege at these protests I do think that it's also a lot of good is happening with, you know, like you were talking about, like white people putting their bodies in between people of color and police. But then also, unfortunately, we're also seeing a lot of police brutality against white people at these protests because they're speaking up for black people and other people of color. And um, 
which is awful. Like, you know, people shouldn't be being brutalized and attacked, but it's also um, that white privilege of like seeing a video of like a police officer push down an old white man who's like in his seventies and starts like bleeding from his head. Like there's very few ways that somebody can try to watch that and rationalize it. People have been, they've been, you know, reaching very hard to do that. But seeing that sort of treatment being done to white bodies, um, I think is, um, it puts a different spin on it than when you, you're very used to seeing police brutalize black and brown bodies, right? Like it's, um, and people have been, um, you know, like, oh, well, these are, you know, rioters, these are whatever. And like seeing that sort of like people that we typically wouldn't, our society like wouldn't view as dangerous inherently because of who they are and seeing them experience this brutality or like seeing police officers lie about things that like other people can corroborate, like that is also playing an important part in how these protests are being seen because you know, seeing seeing that being turned around against white people, it is being um, perceived differently. And that's a problem, it shouldn't be. But the fact of the matter is, is like people are starting to realize just how brutal and just how um, like excessive uh, police are being in a lot of these circumstances because they can finally see it happening to everybody, not just, you know, young black and brown men, um, which we're very used to seeing. And it's, um, it's harder to ignore, like you're seeing it just more frequently. And I think that's playing an important role. Yeah, and I think of like, the role that white privilege plays in that too, because I like that, like that example with the old white man that was pushed down by the cops those cops were charged so fast like it did not take that much time for those those cops to be charged and i don't know if they were fired or not um but i know that situation was dealt with a lot so quick you know and then there's white privilege right there too because we're still trying to get justice for murders against black people that have happened so long ago and that still haven't even been, those situations still have not even been addressed um, with those officers that were involved. So yeah, I think that's like another prime example that white privilege plays too. It's like you see black and brown people and other people of color getting abused by the police for, I don't know, I don't even know how many years, probably since the introduction of police, uh, the police system into America. Um, but then when you, as soon as you start to see white people also experiencing that, then it's like, oh, this is something that needs to be addressed, you know? So that, that role that privilege plays there too, I was just thinking about. Yeah, really quick. I know I've, <laughs> I have so many things to say, um, but like, I think also the fact that like, um, I think predominantly people are really focusing on like George Floyd right now and the fact that like his death because it was just so blatantly like uh, like unqualified I'm putting that in quotes because it's like not that any of the other deaths that have happened um were like necessary in any way 
um, of the word, but like just the fact that uh, people are able to like look at this and just be like, it's so obvious that that shouldn't have happened is really frustrating that that it's taken to that point, obviously, where it's like, okay, so it's been so difficult for people to get on board until they see like a man literally like murdered, like he, there's no way to really twist it. And even then people are still trying to find ways to twist it. Um, but yeah, it's just another, another point of um, like, how much does all of this like violence really need to go on for people to just kind of like wake up in some ways and just like, hello. And I think that just speaks a lot to like white privilege, ignorance, et cetera, all the things that we've been talking about, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I was like, I was trying to explain, I had a conversation with my dad the other day um, and he was asking like, I totally understand the cause uh, in my dad's words, he was like, I get the cause. Like, it was so unjust what happened, you know. Uh, my dad was really angry about what happened with George Floyd, too. Um, but then he hit me with the, but don't you think people are doing a little too much by protesting violently? And so, like, I had this little, like, light bulb moment. And I was like, I think, like, the best way I can explain this to people is, like, when when you're talking to somebody you have to speak their language in order for them to un fully under understand and grasp what you're saying. Yeah. For example, like if someone is a native Spanish speaker, you would have to speak in Spanish or you would have to translate into Spanish in order for them to like fully understand and grasp what you're saying. Yeah. So I think like the same, the same concept applies with this situation. Our country's language has been inherently violent since its beginning, since its origins towards people of color, especially yeah. black and indigenous peoples, you know? So that's the language that they've been speaking. They've been speaking violence. And you can see in the past too, like peaceful protesting only works to a certain extent or doesn't even work. Right. And, and it's like no wonder to me because that's not, peaceful is not the language that our country speaks. So it's, it's like no wonder to me that when things start to get quote unquote violent, that's when people are now starting to get it. You know, like if that kind of makes sense, but yeah. It's also how the attention is brought to it as well. Like, and I don't know if people are necessarily thinking about that because they're just so much in their emotions, but like, you know, the protests that are violent get the attention. And that gets the conversation going. And unfortunately, it usually is like, I can't believe these like thugs in quotes like are out here destroying things. And it's like, well, you weren't listening before and you weren't talking about it, so. Yeah. All right. So the next question um, definitely will, might be a little, I mean, this whole conversation is tough, but um, this next question, um, centers around like what feelings, emotions, and thoughts come up for you when you think about your white privilege. And um, y'all have already kind of shared a little bit about that, but if there's like anything else that you want to mention about like any feelings, emotions, or thoughts that come up to you when you, when you think about the concept of white privilege. Um, I just like have so many different ones <laughs> when I think about that. Like, 
one of them is guilt. Another hands, I feel like empowered by it. In other ways, I feel like, I don't know, like a imposter, I guess, because it's like undeserved. So yeah, it's just a variety of different emotions, but I'm trying to let myself just like feel any of them and make sure like, you know, you can feel the emotion and it doesn't have to guide your choices. Exactly. That's real. That's real. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I just think a lot about how like we learn in our program too um, about like how we can hold these like opposing emotions and how we can feel things that are like so opposite of each other at the same time. Um, so that just like reminded me of that too. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I can relate a lot to feeling like a lot of different things. Um, one of the biggest things that I've been feeling just in relation to all the different events and also just, um, you know, as a white person and like, how can I really make change is just like hopelessness. And um, so that's one of like the hardest things I've been grappling with. And something I was talking about in classes when we were um, in school, even um, in relation to like my internship and just like very easily spiraling into like, well, I can't make, I, I just want everything to be fixed <laughs> or whatever, which is impossible. And I can't do one thing by myself. And I think that um, that also talks a little bit about like how careful you have to be again with like intention versus impact with like the whole white savior kind of complex and things like that. Um, but just trying to remind myself that, you know, every small choice that I make is, is a choice and something to think about and um, acknowledge and then realize that like the ones that do that are like made in a good way or whatever and good intention that do have a good impact are things that um, are helping even if it you know it's hard because it's like I can do one thing I can go to like a protest and I'm like okay but nothing's changed and it's like well yeah of course nothing's going to change just because Laura Young went to a protest, <laughs> like, that's not how it works, but uh, it's, I think it's about that constant, like, everyday work of just even acknowledging and accepting that, like, having these kinds of conversations is some of the work, um, which in some ways, like, kind of disheartens me a little bit, because it's just like, okay, yeah, I can talk about this all day with, like, um, people that agree with me, um, and then I think about some of the thoughts and like words I've been hearing from others about how your circle of impact, um, AKA like your family is one of the biggest ways that you can make those small changes become bigger. So having conversations with family because family is always gonna have different views, especially a white family. And just having those conversations with my family um, is one of the things that I try to come back to is like, okay, I'm having those conversations and it is gonna take a long time but you know it's work that is happening so well all of that if that makes any sense <laughs> yeah yep that makes perfect sense thank you for sharing that um yeah i've definitely been through the circle of feelings and back again um guilt and anxiety and trying to prove somehow that i'm a good person like i'm one of the good ones quote unquote um inappropriate tears um, in conversations about race with people of color that 
kind of bring the focus to me and my feelings. Um, definitely, I have experienced all of those things. Um, and I really, I think one of the things that I've been really trying to learn how to do is to really, not to not feel my feelings, because I think we do, and we have to, and we have to sort through those things within ourselves, but we also really have to learn how to regulate our own feelings and anxieties um, when we're engaging in these conversations, um, because otherwise it becomes about us and our feelings, which is not the point. Like, this is not about our feelings. And it doesn't mean that we don't get to have feelings, but it means that we need to find appropriate and helpful ways of dealing with those. Um, and so that is something that I think I've been, yeah, really just working on. And um, I think will be like an ongoing thing that I have to keep on practicing. Um, but then moving beyond my own feelings into what um, really needs to be my response right now. Thank you for sharing that. Amethyst? Yeah, um, I think, um, sorry, me. Um, I think a lot of the same sort of feelings that everyone else is kind of talking about, like the, the like guilt, the kind of white guilt that is very prominent. And then this sort of feeling like, am I doing enough? And like, really like um trying to like feeling like um you know I want to be like a good ally to people but like am I doing that right am I doing enough and I think like one of the the toughest things for me um in you know not just recently but just over the years um as someone who has been you know striving towards like being actively anti-racist and being an ally is um, um, being afraid of, of doing the wrong thing or like saying the wrong thing or um, worrying about the intention versus impact, but getting so hot, caught up in it that I end up not doing anything. Or like, you know, um, in a lot of my life where um, if, there's like a conversation going on and I feel like everybody has said things that I already agree with or that I think is really good and I don't think I can say it in a better way, I'll often be quiet. And in, in conversations about things like racism, like that's not necessarily the best course of action is to just be quiet just because everybody else has said something already that you think is better. And so, um, one of the main things that I've been trying to learn is just like being okay with the possibility that I will say something wrong or do something wrong and that I might mess up and that it's not going to be the end of the world, but I should still try to take those steps um, and to try to do something rather than being afraid of doing the wrong thing or, um, um, or, or like feeling guilt for not doing enough um, or, but not also using that guilt to not do anything. Like I have to do what I can um, and figuring out a sort of honest, more objective sort of understanding of what I am capable of and like what impact I may or may not have and how to handle that. Right. Yeah, thank you all for sharing that. I, 
I just want to acknowledge that, you know, th this is a really tough conversation to have. So um, I, I just want to acknowledge that and put that out there. And I appreciate you all for, you know, sitting with the discomfort of some of uh, the things that are coming up. So uh, yeah, I definitely want to put that out there and appreciate you all for for doing that, you know, because like, I strongly believe that, you know, sometimes the tough, the toughest conversations are the ones that are most necessary to have. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Um, but so um, the next question is like, I think some of y'all have already mentioned this, but if y'all have anything more to add, how do you sit with these feelings and emotions and thoughts? Like, what are some things that have helped you all sit with these, uh, these things that come up? Um, well, I think just like having different channels to sit with them. Like I have this like journal that I've been writing in. Um, that's been helpful. I have like one of my best friends and we talk through like this stuff together, which has been really good. And then I think I've also just kind of let go kind of what Amethyst said of the idea of like having to say the perfect thing, you know, because you're going to mess up and sometimes, you know, or you're just not able to articulate what you actually mean yet, but that comes with practice. So yeah. Yeah, just kind of giving up on the whole perfectionism. <laughs> Definitely, that's real. Yeah, I think along similar lines, um, something that popped into my head when Amethyst was speaking about this whole idea of doing the right thing, which I think everybody feels um, regardless of like your race, but especially white people. Um, and that's where we get caught up and it doesn't become helpful. But something that helps me is just realizing that I've already messed up, like I've already made mistakes. And, um, you know, people have, like people of color and um, close friends have just been, uh, you know, very more than generous, you know, and uh, so realizing that's another part of white privilege is just like, I can make mistakes and still be accepted. And I think that um, it's better to make mistakes than to not do anything at all. So that's some, some of how I, I think about that. And then I also am thinking about just like also, again, wanting to take care of myself at the same time. So taking a moment and giving myself space to disconnect from it at certain parts, which again relates to white privilege, like I'm allowed and able to do that. Um, but realizing that in the long run, doing that can help me be there for in other ways. And thinking of our you know, future careers again, like if I can't take care of myself, if I'm just burnt out, then how am I gonna like, you know, be there for somebody who is asking for that like conversation or something like that. Um, so it's tough because it's like a constant like balancing of the scales um, because, you know, again, like you have that privilege to take the breaks, um, but you know, it's also necessary, so. Yeah, very true. I think it's really helpful for me to um, realize and remember that ultimately none of this has to do with whether or not I am a good person. <laughs> um, but of course, we're all like working on our own growth and development, but that what matters is figuring out how to engage in anti-racist um, action and that you can still be a totally imperfect person and make mistakes and be choosing um, 
to engage in, in action and activities and learning that are anti-racist, even while being shaped and still having racist culture and impulses, you can make a choice. And I think that's really helpful for me that it's not a like good, bad kind of dichotomy. It's like, what kind of choices are we making? Um, and that it's not about my own um, goodness somehow. And I think that's maybe partly to do with my own upbringing, but that's like a really important thing that I can feel like I'm a good person. Um, but I think that's a really freeing idea to me that it's not really about that. Um, yeah, also I think one thing that's helpful for me is realizing what are some of the things that might sort of bring up my anxieties or my um, self-consciousness in these kind of conversations and kind of like planning for that, planning for the ways that I'm going to stay um, a little bit more grounded. And sometimes that is like certain ways of like being conscious of my own breath or like a knitting project <laughs> or to get art therapy on us. Um, yeah, I think that those things really can help me regulate myself in the midst of these conversations um, so that I can show up in a more productive way that's not about um, my anxiety. Yeah, yeah. All really good points. Amethyst, did you want to add anything onto that? Um, yeah, so um, I think um, for me, it has just been a lot of that, um, that unlearning of the sort of anxiety and guilt and, um, you know, fear of messing up. Um, and, you know, a lot of that I've been looking towards like other people I admire and like finding outside resources that I can cite and that I can read and that I can use to educate myself, um, you know, like on social media and um, in other like spheres um, and just using those as like a way to um, sort of work out before I have to try to work them out in another aspect. I guess, um, let me figure out what I mean. So it's like, if I like seeing what other people are doing and seeing what people are asking for and what other people are thinking, people who have more experience and knowledge than me and finding out where they're at and what they're saying and, um, and basing a lot of my, um, basing a lot of my knowledge and my intentions and my actions and you know thoughts around that is very comforting to me is having that education having those sources um and so yeah like relying on that a lot i think has been pretty helpful for me um and then just also other regulation things like the way i would regulate myself for any sort of stressful uh, situation was like making sure I take some time to like cook or entertainment and then um, even interpreting those in ways where I can still do some of that work. So like 
finding like, you know, where I usually like to listen to podcasts, like, okay, well, let's find some podcasts that have black voices because I don't listen to a lot of podcasts that feature black people or, you know, other, other marginalized communities and finding that sort of, um, finding that sort of connection where I can still, you know, do things that I enjoy and still try to reach out and do some work in that regards as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that, I think like that brings me to one of these other questions that I had was um, if you guys have any books or podcasts or uh, other resources that have helped you with your journey in learning about white privilege and sitting with those, uh, with whatever comes up when you think about that. Um, if, if you have any like books or recommendations or anything for people that are listening that want to learn more, um, if you all want to take some time right now to just share some of the things that have helped you along the way. Um, so I watched this talk yesterday by Ibram X. Kendi, and it talked a lot about how you can be a person who has like said and done things and aligned with racism, but also can say and do things aligned with anti-racism. And I think that's a really good point. Um, just because it brings back the idea that we do have agency and we do have, you know, control over our own choices and how we choose to move forward. And just because you haven't, um, you know, maybe taken as much action in the past or anything or like done things that you regret doesn't mean that you can't change your behavior. So we're not just like good or bad people, anti-racist or racist. We have, you know, a choice in how we behave. And I, and, um, I think having conversations with family, again, is helpful. Um, because while in my family I might lead a lot of those conversations, there's still, um, it lets me, like, not worry as much about how I word things. Um, because your family's just, like, at least with my family, um, I shouldn't speak for all families because it's not like that, but, um, with my family, it feels like a very comfortable and like accepting space. And especially if I'm like the one trying to educate in quotes, um, the rest of my family, like making mistakes is a little bit more um, accepted because it's like, we're all learning together. So I don't know, that's like something that I think, you know, talking with family or, or other white friends and of course, centering like voices of people of color um, in those conversations but not necessarily asking them to come in. Um, and just like having that space to be like, oh, let's just like mess up a bunch and learn together um, has been helpful. I have a whole bunch of Instagram people. Well, they're not just Instagram people, but a bunch of people that I follow um, on Instagram that I think are very helpful to me. And maybe I'll like send you some of those names in the messages, but um, one person is Leila Saad, who wrote Me and White Supremacy. Um, and it is a book that goes through a bunch of journaling activities um, for people with white privilege. Um, and I think that's a really helpful resource. Um, also, if you look at the New York Times um, bestseller nonfiction list for this week, it has a ton of amazing books um, about anti-racism um, 
And so, I mean, I, I think it's a great thing that all of these books are selling out at this moment. Um, and also, obviously, we have to do more than just read the book. So that's one thing among the many things <laughs> that we need to be doing in this moment. Um, but would it be helpful for me to share some of the Instagram names? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, I'll do that. And then I'll just like put a list of resources together and add it into the notes for this episode so people can go and check that out if they're interested in yeah. that. But yeah, I would appreciate that. Thank okay, you. I will. Um, and I also just wanted to note that there are so many um, resources kind of going around on social media right now, like compilations of anti-racism resources. Um, so like it doesn't take very much digging and um, research to turn up some really great sources right now if people will just take a minute to do that. Right. Yep. Amethyst, did you want to add anything onto that? Yeah. Um, so when I think about like texts that I've read that I've done a lot for um, like uh, one of the things I think of is a book that we read, I think it was either like our first semester this year or maybe last year even, I think it was our first semester this year. The one by um, Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates, The Between the World and Me. Um, reading that was very, very helpful for me. Um, I've also recently downloaded uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison that I've been getting through. Um, I'm just right now at the very beginning but just finding um, finding different narratives and different formats that work for me, like a lot of those very, um, like reading things about like theory and like the that sort of thing is like one thing, but for me, like reading those like narrative, like first person experiences and narratives are very helpful. Um, and then just like, expanding my just like plain entertainment like I listen to a lot of podcasts and they're pretty much exclusively Dungeons and Dragons podcasts where people just like play Dungeons and Dragons and record it <laughs> and I love those but I've noticed like a lot of the ones that I listen to um, are very predominantly white and so a lot of the ones that have that I usually listen to have decided to like take a week off or take you know d um, postpone some of their episodes in um in the the you know to kind of respect the conversation that's going on right now and so just like I've been spending time these past few weeks trying out different Dungeons and Dragons podcasts that just feature black players and like you know black performers which um I'm still trying out a few I've, I've listened to a couple of them and then just finding just like other like entertainers even outside of like reading anti-racist theory but just like regular entertainment that features people of color because that's also like got to be an aspect of your life um and I think uh especially like when I you know throughout my life finding just uh enter like just entertainment that isn't necessarily like focused on or um the main point being racism but like finding those those stories and tv shows that feature you know black leads or you know finding like comics or whatever and stories like those have done so much for me um you know 
like those can be just as helpful and you can find just as much uh uh just as much sort of um uh, insight from those sorts of stories and you know sort of critical analysis um and like academic essays and stuff yeah yeah that's awesome we got a whole range of different types of resources here so that's awesome thank you all for sharing those um and i have like two questions left so like one kind of bigger question and then uh, the last one will just be like a general type of question but um for this next question i think it's really important and it pertains specifically to the mental health field and uh, our field that we're going into art therapy um which holds a lot of white, white privilege in and of itself. So I definitely wanted to um, have a conversation with you all on what does white privilege look like in the field of mental health and specifically art therapy? Um, well, in mental health, I think white privilege looks like um, focusing on ideas that are actually more related to white culture than health, such as to say, I like idea that individualism is the healthiest way to be. Um, and also it has to do with who can become a mental health professional because it's a master's degree and it costs money. And currently I looked it up yesterday, like 80% of psychologists are white, which is, and then only 60% of the general population is white. So there's just like a lot of people of color who are missing from that field, probably just because they can't afford it. Um, and then it's definitely big in art therapy because it was like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like 98% of art therapists are white women or 97%. I actually didn't even know the, the number. I just knew it was a lot. It's, a, it's like the vast majority. And I think that also has to deal with the whole cost issue because um, to be an art therapist, there's not a ton of jobs in that. Um, so I think a lot of the people who can choose to be art therapists, probably me included, are those who either have family money to rely on in case it doesn't work out, or like their husband's money <laughs> to rely on in case it doesn't work out. And white people do on average have more of the wealth than um, a lot of people of color. So very good point. Thank you. Yeah, this is such a big question. I feel like we could have um, a whole nother episode on just this <laughs> because uh, it is helpful for people listening who don't know anything about art therapy to like have that whole background of like, welcome to this field. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think uh, art therapy in some ways is like, just synonymous with white privilege because it's that's what it was built in um sort of like our country <laughs> um so yeah i don't know it's what does it look like i it looks like a lot of things just said it looks like um you know people of color not going to therapy because you know they're not feeling like they're um seeing people that are similar to them uh, they're not having that kind of support. It also means that like another reason that people of color aren't maybe going to therapy is because they've had bad experiences with therapists and people in the mental health field who have just been like straight up racist to them. Um, 
in a space that's supposed to be therapeutic. Yeah. Um, and it's also like that whole white feminist side of things, like the toxic feminist kind of perspective of these white women who are, like we talked about a little bit earlier about like um, being a white woman uh, can just sort of give you that like seeing things from two different sides. So it's like, you've got this like oppression um, when you're a woman and then you've got this privilege. And so it all gets kind of messy, um, which we've talked a little bit about. And, I, and that's just so blatantly um, like aware and aware is not quite the right word, but like apparent, apparent is the word, apparent in the field of art therapy. Um, and I'll just never forget when I went to um, the art therapy, American Art Therapy Association conference, um, I think it's 2017 or 2018. Um, and just going in with this like naive uh, kind of ignorant perspective of being like, oh, well, it's like a mental health field. Like everyone's gonna support anyone that comes to see them and then just uh, getting that whole um, narrative like flipped on its head for me um, and just realizing that of course there's going to be people who are working in this field that aren't following you know this perfect image that I have of everyone and so I don't know it's all of that and more but that's sort of like the just the surface of what it looks like for me at least. Definitely yeah. Yeah, I think within the field of art therapy in particular, I mean, it looks like the field or the national organization choosing um, the benefit of our profession um, over, um, you know, well, I'm thinking specifically about the alignment with Karen Pence um, and the choice to do that um, despite all of the devastating impacts um, of her husband's administration on so many of the people that the field supposedly serves. Um, so that's another example um, yeah. that comes to mind for me. Yeah, yeah, great point. Great point. Amethyst, anything to add? Yeah, um, I think uh, when we you know, we, uh, as art therapy specifically, um, and it being very largely white women, but when you think of a lot of the, like, techniques that are used, like drawing mandalas, which is a, a very, um, which is, you know, based on a technique um, from, like, different, um, from, like, South Asian background but like all these white women are like appropriating it and taking it to be like a therapy technique that's being done by people who aren't being represented in the field and you know whether you know whether you're doing it like correctly quote-unquote or doing it like respectfully or in an honorable way or not like a lot of our techniques come from other cultures and they're just not being represented and then other like using art to make people feel good isn't like nearly as revolutionary as like some might think reading a lot of art therapy literature like people have been doing this for ages and then you know this field has been legitimized in this country because a group of white women um decided that 
that they could make this into a, a legitimate field in the field of psychology and make it something that you have to have a license for and you have to get all this you know um, education for which is good for keeping us accountable and keeping us informed but it also works as a barrier um, to keep a lot of people out and for people who have been doing very similar work for ages um, and doing very similar things for a long time and they're not able to access the profession in the same way that all these you know overwhelmingly white women can um and then i also think about the field growing out of psychoanalysis and um how a lot of you know kind of it started to move away i think but a lot of early art therapy literature um is very much based on interpretation of clients images and narratives done by the therapist and then that being like assigned to the client like having and that's something that occurs in psychoanalysis as well where people will share their experiences with you know a therapist and a therapist will provide their own take as to like what that means or like what they're really saying or what they're really like what their unconscious is thinking when they might just have wildly different life experiences and for me to try to like you know like trying to imagine like me or like another white person telling a person of color like what their artwork means is just like that just reeks of like privilege and entitlement of like my narrative that i can see and understand and come up with is the correct one and the most informed one yeah. speaks to a lot of the privilege in the field of psychology as well yeah, definitely. I appreciate all the points that you all brought up. Um, and just like the last general question I have is like, if you, if any of you have any last words or just anything else you want to mention, uh, I want to give you all space to, to do that now. Um, something I was thinking about that um, relates to this question of like white privilege in the field of um, mental health, but on the opposite side of um, coming as like somebody trying to go to therapy, um, the sort of like systematic stuff that's in place there. Um, like just again, how many of our systems are steeped in like racist um, viewpoints and just like um, even like racist and homophobic and everything of, you know, all the isms um, because of how insurance charges and how you have to have insurance and to even get that there's just so many systems you have to go through so for people to even access you know the field that we want to work in there's already like thousands of barriers for that so i think you know there's nonprofits and things like that that are doing their best to try and break some of that down and that's something that i'm like really passionate about because i think it's it's just ridiculous that like, you know, our mental health uh, isn't taken care of in the same way as our physical health. Even then, like our physical health is, as you all know, not taken care of easily. Um, so that's just something that I think about a lot and I'm really interested in trying to figure out like how we start to even break down those systems and, um, you know, progress towards making changes in that. But 
yeah that could be a whole other episode again so yeah <laughs> lots to talk about <laughs> i have one last thing i'd like to say um i've been thinking about this since i went to that protest in my hometown and how i at one point believed that people in this area didn't care about the things that i do just because like i guess you know when i was growing up people just weren't as loud about these things and I would say that's a very dangerous belief is just to assume that other people don't care. And then you get into this state of hopelessness that there's nothing that you can do. And I think what's really, um, I guess, helpful to white people at this point in time is that it's never been easier to find information about concrete things that you can actually do. Um, like I'm, I forgot to mention this earlier. I follow this Instagram account called Grassroots Law, and it has like every single, like almost every day, numbers that you can call to like contact politicians about policies and whatnot. Um, so yeah, there are concrete things to do, and you can find them. And you know, a lot of people are capable of doing them. And I also, the last thing I want to say is I don't think that racism will ever change unless we become active in changing policies and we have a democracy so there are things that we can do to influence policy <laughs> so that's my last point definitely very well said right um so yeah i definitely just want to thank you all again for having this conversation and um spending the past two hours with me which is a really long time um but you know i think this was definitely a really powerful conversation and i i do believe in action um and also i think like all action does begin with just having conversations too and uh, just talking about these issues can be very powerful in and of itself too um, so yeah, and as a person of color, I really appreciate it too, because, you know, like, it, it gets exhausting sometimes to always have to explain what white privilege is to people, um, especially white people. So um, yeah, just as a person of color, I, it's like a breath of fresh air to, to have to kind of be able to sit back and, you know, just, um, just hear what you all have to say about that too. So that was the end of the interview portion and the end of the conversation for this episode. So again, I want to thank you all if you made it through this entire episode. I acknowledge that it was very long. So thank you all for, you know, staying tuned and listening and supporting. And again, I want to thank my fellow peers that were involved in the conversation today. Um, Jessica Walters, Laura Young, Catherine Lamb. Amethyst Travelli, uh, Courtney Bennett, and Julianne Gurner. I want to thank all of you for your time and your insight. I is very valuable to me, and I appreciate it a lot. And I will be including all of their contact information that they provided, um, and so you guys can feel free to reach out to them. I'll be putting that in the episode notes and also all of the resources that were mentioned today in today's episode. Well, you can also find those in the episode notes as well. As always, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, feel free to check out our other episodes. Um, and if you would love to follow along with us and support SynergyCast, there are a few things you can do to help. So one thing you can do is subscribe. 
on whatever podcast platform that you choose to listen to uh, Synergy Cast. Um, there's some good news. We are now available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and um, Overcast as well. So those are a few podcast mediums that you can listen to Synergy Cast on. So whichever medium you choose and prefer, you can subscribe to us on that. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at SynergyCast, and I will be including that in the episode notes as well. So if you want to follow along for updates, that would be lovely and greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you would, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy listening to SynergyCast, please leave a rating and a good review. Um, and I know on Apple Podcasts you can do that. I am not sure about other podcast mediums, but I know for sure with Apple Podcasts, you can leave a rating and review. So that would also be really helpful and greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for new episodes coming soon. Take care, everyone, and be safe.